Well, good evening to you all. Um, it's a great uh, privilege for me to be back. There's one small mistake there, says David Hill Chalice. Some of you may know that I'm now uh, at the University of Durham. <laughs> but I'm delighted to be back for this global policy event. Um, this evening's event is a global policy dialogue on the state of the world economy in 2012. For those of you who don't know, Global Policy is an interdisciplinary journal based here at the LSE that focuses on global collective action problems and how we might best resolve them, with the sole aim of creating a bridge between academia and policymakers in core sectors of transborder issues. Tonight's discussion follows a, a, from a hugely successful encounter between our two speakers in June here at the LSE last year, June last year. The podcast of that event was downloaded in the two months that followed over half a million times, and I only have the data for the first two months. So as one of our, uh, our speakers recently said, that's a lot of very sad people out there. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I said what it is, is it reflects an extraordinary interest and engagement with, of course, some of the most pressing questions of our time. I'm delighted to welcome back Jean-Michel Severino and Martin Wolf, who will speak this evening about some of these pressing global economic issues, and pressing they are indeed. Jean-Michel Severino was until recently General Inspector of Finances at the French Ministry of Finance. I say was until recently because he just told me 30 seconds ago that he now runs a private equity firm and has left the ministry. So maybe he can say something about that later. But he's began his career working for the French Ministry of Finance and Economy. His career took an international turn in the mid-1990s when he was appointed for the, as the director for, the, for Central Europe at the World Bank, and he went on to work, work at the World Bank for some time. In 2000, Jean-Michel returned to France for an appointment as Inspector General of Finance in the French Ministry of Economy, Finance and Industry. And in 2001, he was appointed as a Chief Executive officer for the French development agency, the AFD, which engages in over five continents and which under his management and guidance, as it were, set itself the aim of directing French development policy towards the reduction of poverty, the uh, stimulation of economic growth, and the protection and nurturing of global public goods. Martin Wolf, for many of you, hardly needs an introduction, if he needs an introduction at all. He is, of course, Associate Editor and Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times. He is a, if not, simply the best journalist in his field in the world. Martin has been a member of the UK Government's Independent Commission on Banking between June 2010 and September 2011. He's, of course, the author of numerous articles on a weekly basis, more serious, longer-term articles, and also books of a variety of kind, and many of you will know his book, Why Globalization Works. He has won many prestigious awards for his work. I won't list these awards now. Suffice it to say, they're testimony to a long engagement in economic questions, and he's worked at the interface of serious economic analysis and public life for several decades. Jean-Michel Savarino and Martin Wolf will each speak for about 20 minutes. Martin Wolf will speak first, then we may have some discussion between us, depending on exactly what they say, and of course then the floor is open to all of you. So please join with me in giving them both a very warm welcome.
Um, sounds a strange noise. Um, are you hearing a strange noise out there? Because if so, but, uh, it, ah, something wonderful's happened. Now, the only other thing I need to know is perhaps I should turn off this. Is how to con how do I actually turn the control this wonderful um, system? Is there something that obvious that controls the system? Or am I being even more stupid than usual? Yes. Ah, a magic keyboard appears. I'm used to these clickers. Oh. Can I ask a technical question before we start? Do we need both mics on at once? Is that the problem, that the mics are... Uh, Let me... Yes. I think this one is on. Right, so... Yes, if the is on. Okay, I'll put... I'll put... This is, uh, I'm afraid we've wasted five minutes, I apologise. Um, I don't take complete responsibility for this. It just occurred to me when uh, David was introducing uh, us um, uh, that uh, we didn't much discuss the, the previous occasion, which I enjoyed very much, that uh, Jean-Michel and I share uh, an institution, uh, and I don't think we discussed that much, namely the World Bank, um, you arrived in the World Bank long after I left. I left in fair disgust in 81. Um, uh, I have a strong suspicion, but you can ask him afterwards, that he left in much the same state after the Asian financial crisis. Uh, what I'm going to do, if, if we are lucky, no, I'm not going to be lucky. Uh, next slide. Uh, next slide, come on. Yeah. Is uh, go as quickly as I can through some features of where the world economy is today and uh, uh, through a number of pictures it's relatively concrete and detailed and, um, and fact-based and Jean-Michel as I know is going to provide a great deal of very profound poetry and I think that's, that works very well and also symbolizes rather beautifully um, what the channel is about. Uh, I'm <laughs> Um, I'm, um, I'm going to discuss uh, three issues, uh, what I call the shift. Some of that I did discuss last time, so I'll go through that relatively quickly. And I will focus on the shocks. So it's going to be about the financial crises of uh, the West in general and the Eurozone in particular, and where those might end up. Those are the subjects I'm going to focus on. And since we're supposed to be talking about the world economy in 2012, I think the financial crises of the West are, as it were, the core story for 2012, probably. Um, but there is always the un unexpected. And then I'll talk briefly about some aspects of the prospect, some of the issues that arise. Okay, um, I'll start with the shift. Uh, I've talked about this before. Um, so it's a well-known story. It's obviously an incredibly important story. In the 19th century, and I don't have the time to go through this, uh, we developed uh, an extraordinary divergence in the world economy between the living standards of the today's industrial countries, the West predominantly, though Japan, as I notice here, joined them in the, second, in the course of the 20th century. Um, and by the middle of the 20th century, so about 60 years ago, at purchasing power parity, according to Angus Manderson, incomes in the West 
were uh, the richest countries of the West, incomes per head were 30 times, 30 times those in countries like China and India. And the big story of the last 20 years is obviously the reversal of this process. And uh, I just wanted to bring up to date what's been going on in the last five years because I think it is simply staggering. Uh, this is what the world economy looks like in GDP terms since 2007. Uh, which was, of course, the beginning of the financial crisis. These are data from the IMF. Uh, the top line, the light blue line, is China. The line below it is India. The line below this is all emerging countries, and the purpley line, purple mauve line, I'm not very good at describing colors, so you can decide what that color is for yourself, is the advanced economies. And the point is pretty clear and quite staggering, I think, is that between 2007 and 2012, so we're talking five years, the Chinese economy will have expanded uh, by 60% in five years. Over the same period, the Indian economy will have expanded by about 145%, the emerging countries in general by 30%, and the advanced countries will not have expanded at all. So we can say uh, that the world economy is changing rather quickly. This is a speed of relative change um, that has simply no historical parallels. There's never been anything like it before in history. And as a result of this, again from the IMF, we are seeing a simply staggeringly swift change in the relative size of economies measured in the conventional way. There are all sorts of problems with measurement of economies, but these are measurements of purchasing power parity, so they're comparable, though artificial international prices. I'm not going to go to the, don't have the time to discuss what purchasing power parity means. But basically, if you go back to 1990, China was 4% of the world economy, India was 3%, and the developed countries were 70%. So this was the developed economies were, were essentially the world economy. Europe was 29, the US was 25. According to the IMF, by 2016, China, Europe, and the United States will each be of the same size, 18% each. India's another 7%. And of course, this is, these are still early stages. So this just brings out, I think, very well the, the, uh, the, shock, the transformation. There are a whole host of consequences of this, some of which I discussed before, so I'm not going to repeat them, uh, but um, in detail, a labor supply shock, a disinflationary shock in the 90s and early 2000s because China lowered world prices of manufacturers, a massive increase in the surplus of desired savings in the late 1990s after the Asian financial crisis, which then was associated with the rise of the global imbalances in this last decade, one of the trigger conditions for the financial crisis. More recently, we've lived through a sort of inflationary shocks, demand for raw materials has soared, and ongoing shifts in global economic activity. Let me move now to the shocks. So that's the background condition of what's going on in the world. We are, have experience, I'll go through this very quickly, a very large economic collapse and an extraordinary rescue. The rescue we have uh, had uh, of the economy in terms of monetary and fiscal policy has no precedent in history. The, de the developed countries have never run monetary and fiscal policy in peacetime of the kind that they are now running. 
a world in which the highest interest rate offered by any major central bank is 1% has no precedent. The current interest rate offered by the, the Britain Bank of England, and it will continue probably for years, has never happened before in a record going back three centuries. So, and in addition, the fiscal policy we are following, the deficits we're running in this country and a number of others, has never occurred before outside world wars. So we're living, in my view, in what I've referred to as a contained depression, a situation in which essentially these extraordinary policies, fiscal and monetary, are preventing a true outright slump. And it could take many years before we recover. The main reason for this, and to sort of illustrate this for the UK, US, to a lesser degree, the euro area, is the extraordinary accumulations of debt in the years up to the crisis. Here you can see the dramatic increase in the indebtedness of the UK household sector relative to income, also of the US household sector relative to income, and you can see the progressive deleveraging and the weaknesses of household income, that spending that goes with that ever since the crisis. In terms of GDP, this shows the GDP of the G7, so the, the seven largest countries in the developed world. Apart from Canada, there is no major developed country whose GDP in the third quarter of last year, it was the most recent quarter we have, which is, is in any way significantly above what it was before the crisis. With essentially, none of them is, is significantly above where they were before the crisis in Japan, Italy and the UK are together still about 4% below the crisis level. We have accumulated, as I've said, very, very large increases in debt. These show the data for public debt for 2006, 9, 12, and 15. If you look at the UK and the US, both of them are expected to double their net public debt in a period of six years. That's never happened to the UK before outside world wars. So this is an unprecedented increase in public sector debt. This is also true for Japan, interestingly, with the most indebted. Italy has very high debt, but it remains reasonably controlled, interestingly. Um, because of these large fiscal de debts, people are very worried about them, whether rightly or wrongly. I think in some cases excessively worried. Every major developed country is now going through structural fiscal tightening. You can see this. Every country is reducing their structural fiscal deficit. And that, of course, means that the fiscal support for our very weak economies is being withdrawn with inevitable consequences, I think, in terms of economic activity. For many of the, for some at least, of the most creditworthy developed countries with their own currencies, uh, that I don't have the time to, ex to explore this fascinating conundrum, but if you look at Japan, Germany, uh, the UK and US, they are the ones at the, towards the bottom. Uh, Long-term interest rates are extraordinarily low. Within the Eurozone, however, very wide divergences have opened up between Germany, which is obviously regarded as the safe haven bond in the Eurozone structure, vis-a-vis -vis France. You can see France suddenly rising in the last two or three months, and far above them, Italy and Spain. And I'm going to come further, to come in a few minutes to the problems of Italy and Spain in particular, and what that means for the Euro. So broadly speaking, in terms of the, the developed world as a whole, 
we have a gigantic shock contained by extraordinary interventions on the monetary and fiscal side, very, very slow and weak recoveries, massive uh, uh, fiscal retrenchment problems. But fortunately, the one piece of good news in the UK, the US, uh, Japan, and Germany is the governments are still able to borrow. And as long as they can borrow, they can continue to support their economies. Unfortunately, now this leads me to the last, uh, the, set, the next thing I want to discuss, the Eurozone. This situation does not apply in the Eurozone. And the core of the Eurozone crisis now is there are a number of very major sovereigns that can no longer borrow easily. And that has changed their capacity to deal with the, the problems they face in the most dramatic and dangerous way. The core of the Eurozone crisis, in my view, was ultimately a financial crisis, not a fiscal crisis. The financial crisis uh, arose from the extraordinarily easy supply of credit across the borders of the Eurozone prior to 2007. This generated huge balance of payments, deficits, um, um, which uh, were no longer financed after 2007 when the financing stopped. Uh, this uh, led to a collapse of economies. That's when the fiscal deficits exploded. The fiscal deficits in many countries, a number of countries, as I'll show you, are a consequence of the crisis. But there's one country that had very huge fiscal deficits even before, that's Greece and huge debt. And in the case of Italy, to a much lesser degree, Belgium, they inherited large debt stocks. And this created huge anxiety. Uh, so what we basically are dealing with is divergences accumulated in the years of excess. And those excesses created an acute long-term crisis. And when the crisis uh, finally became really severe, there wasn't a union sufficiently strong to deal with it. There wasn't, an, there wasn't any form of financing to deal with the crisis. They all had to be invented after the event. And it turned out that the adjustment mechanisms which you need in terms of relative prices, competitiveness, were also completely ineffective. And that's essentially where we are in the Eurozone. Just to indicate my theme, if you look at the um, current account balances in average between 99 and 2007, you go across the page, you look at the blue ones, you will see the blue ones, uh, Finland, Netherlands, Belgium is an exception because it had this huge debt stock. But you look at Finland, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Austria. These are all countries that were in pretty good shape after the crisis. The countries that really got into difficulty were places like Estonia, Portugal, Greece, Spain, and Ireland, which had really rather large deficits. And it's those current account deficits that turned to be so extraordinarily dangerous after the finance stopped. As, I've as you can see here, in the case of Portugal, Ireland, and Spain, the debt positions that they were in, the public debt positions they were in before the crisis were really quite comfortable. If you could see in Ireland's case, in Spain's case, and also Portugal's case, even to some degree Greece's case, the debt exploded after the crisis, not before the crisis. Uh, Ireland is the most extreme case of this kind I've ever seen in my life. This is a country that had effectively no net public debt at all before the crisis, and three years later the debt was more than 100% of GDP, from zero to 100% in three years, a consequence of a monstrous financial crisis which uh, Ireland took entirely on the government balance sheet. Once this became obvious, 
these sorts of processes became obvious uh, and people started becoming very frightened as a result of this that the Eurozone wouldn't even survive, the uh, credit spreads exploded. And you can see from nothing, uh, back in 2007, there was no credit spread at all virtually in the Eurozone. Everybody was treated as equal, the markets treated them all as the same, and then of course these credit spreads just blew out to uh, an extraordinary degree in the course of the last year or two. In the case of Greece, Ireland and Portugal, we've got uh, spheres in the uh, credit spreads in the stratosphere and of course Greece is now effectively insolvent. Um, uh, and of course you'll be, you know that they're discussing default right at, uh, right at this moment. So finally let me conclude with um, summarize briefly where I think we are in terms of prospects with this background. This huge contained depression in the developed world as a whole and this multiplied by the extraordinary um, stresses in the Eurozone, a system which simply wasn't designed to cope with the sorts of problems it now has. Um, at the broadest level, and that really brings together my themes, we're watching the interaction of two huge economic events. A secular shift in the location of economic activity, some consequences of which I've just touched upon, I could go on much further, maybe we will in discussion, and the collapse of a generational expansion in private and to a lesser extent public sector leverage in high income countries. The Eurozone crisis falls at the intersection of these two processes. In fact, it runs right, those processes run right between them. One very, through the Eurozone, one very interesting little aspect of this, just a small aspect, is in terms of the relative competitiveness of Eurozone countries. The rise of Asia has had the effect, the rise of Asia has had the effect of making Germany, in particular, much more competitive internationally, and Southern Europe much less competitive internationally. They, the latter needs, uh, needs real depreciation relative to Germany, but the first 10 years delivered the exact opposite of what they needed. Um, so how might it all play out? Obviously we don't know, but let me just go briefly through the growth prospects. Uh, since nobody knows what's going to happen, I tend to follow the consensus of forecasts, the wisdom of crowds, at least it gives you some sense of what people thought. And here you can see just how grim prospects have turned in the, in the developed world. The blue lines show the growth prospects for the US, UK, Japan, Eurozone, Germany, France, Italy and Spain as were expected on average in the middle of last year for this year's growth. So they thought that the US would grow about 3% and the Eurozone would grow about 1.7%. The brown lines show what we now expect what the world now expects in January, namely recessions in Spain, very deep recessions, in, quite deep recessions in Italy, recession in the Eurozone as a whole, and a weakening of growth absolutely everywhere, dramatically so in the UK. So it looks really bad for the developed countries. Interestingly, largely because of the greater concern about what's going to happen in the developed countries, there's also been a marked move to pessimism in much of the emerging world, but to nothing like the same degree. So if these prognoses work out, the divergence that I started with will continue in exactly the same way. The developed world won't grow at all this year, and the emerging countries are going to explode. 
At the global level, we have some very, very big challenges, particularly in the developed world, accelerating the deleveraging in the private sectors, which is still at a relatively early stage, rebalancing the world economy to give over-leveraged economies the ability to enjoy export-led growth, which they need to absorb their private sector financial surpluses, their excess savings as it is now. They need to reduce fiscal deficits ultimately though I think not in any way urgently in the countries that can still borrow easily. And, of course, there are still concerns about the ability of emerging countries to avoid excesses. There's a particular concern in China. In the Eurozone, they've got a five to ten year adjustment process ahead of them, which is going to have to be financed while and if adjustment occurs. The adjustment is going to have to go through a combination of structural reform and divergent inflation across the Eurozone with significantly higher inflation in core countries and low inflation in vulnerable countries. The core countries are completely unwilling to accept higher inflation and the ECB is not acting to create it. The big risk here is a combination of premature fiscal tightening in the periphery and the absence of adjustment in the core, and I must say that I fear the, con the possibility and consequences of a breakup that remains, despite recent greater confidence, uh, and I think a huge threat for the Europe, the Eurozone, Europe and the world. Very final thing, the sort of summation of this. Um, uh, I believe that growth in high, country, high income countries, sorry, high income countries is going to remain weak for many years. There's still a chance of a true depression. Headline inflation rates will continue to fall. Short term official interest rates will remain extraordinarily low, if that's right. Countries with their own central banks will continue to have low long term bond rates, but unfortunately, many Eurozone countries will not. Eurozone breakup risk remains. It's really a very disturbing situation. Probably the US will be the fastest growing of the big economies, but still very weak by historical standards, not sufficient to eliminate uh, high unemployment and low employment. The emerging countries will probably grow quickly, but against the background of a very weak developed world, and there's some chance of crises there too. This is a period of extraordinary stress and adjustment in the world economic system, and we're nowhere near through it. Thank you very much. For all those of you in the Eurozone, developed world, you can have a quick bar break <laughs> before Jean-Michel returns. Now that was a joke. Jean-Michel, over to you. Thank you, Martin, for a tour de force, I should say, as usual. Uh, it doesn't get clearer, and in this case, starker. And the challenges are clearly immense. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Seems to work. Okay, so good evening again. I'm very lucky because now, now speaking after Martin, uh, everything that I will say uh, will look sunny, bright, <laughs> positive, <laughs> optimistic. So I have an easy task. Thank you very much, Martin, being so fair of the French. <laughs> I appreciate this British courtesy. Uh, it's now the second time I had this wonderful opportunity to discuss with uh, Martin and us um, uh, every time uh, I'm extremely impressed by the, the breadth of his vision 
And I must say that uh, the task is very difficult with me because I share so many of his views, and it's not surprising because I have the privilege, probably I'm the only one in this audience that, I have to, that has the privilege to read him frequently in French, thanks to the cooperation that Financial Times has with uh, Le Monde. So in France, we are enlightened also with uh, Martin's thoughts. Um, Martin has done, uh, I mean, the difficult job you know, uh, setting the landscape, uh, describing some of the key mechanisms that uh, uh, are there, that are la laying behind uh, the big crisis and the uh, financial movements and, and frenzy that we are experiencing each and every day uh, th those months. So uh, it gives me room to address uh, longer term issues, uh, sharing the view that uh, within the Eurozone and the OECD countries in general, it will be very difficult to have very good news in the coming five and probably ten years. At the same time, we have to try to address uh, our core challenges and to get out of the crisis, not relying only in the fiscal adjustment that anyway will have to go under. So what I will do tonight is starting from the statement that we are heading towards probably will be a slow and dirty growth. Uh, and you will see why the dirty is a very important dimension of the economic trends that we are experiencing, even on the financial side. Now, I would like to uh, start we, you know, uh, seeing with you if we can say, if we can see ways out of this uh, world. And the uh, angle I'm going to take is coming from my experience as a development person. I spent, uh, I was born in Africa, I spent all my life dealing and my professional life dealing with uh, economic poverty issues in the developing world. And for so many years, those issues have seen, have been as marginal to, to especially the mainstream of our economics. And uh, suddenly in the past 10, 20 years, those poverty and development <coughs> issues have invited themselves in the mainstream economics. And, this, and because of the combination of the economic growth of part of the world, but also of the demographic growth of uh, what is called uh, the emerging and developing world. So I will try to see, and if it is true that some of the major causes of our uh, economic crisis, as Martin has rightly uh, stressed, uh, with the uh, capacity uh, and, and the uh, wage crisis on one side, financial side crisis on one side, so if some of those uh, features are the root of the crisis, then we can look maybe at how our relationship with the emerging and developing countries uh, can be also part of the solution and bring us some of the structural uh, uh, ways out of the crisis beyond things that have to be done in uh, the developing, in the emerging, in the OECD countries anyway, which is, for, for instance, uh, bringing more innovation, uh, better functioning markets, uh, and uh, enhancing competitiveness. And I will try to focus in, in this, on this dimension. And I will start uh, by remain, reminding that we may fail. We may fail, and it may be the case that uh, if uh, global imbalances are one of the, uh, the core reasons why we have gone into uh, the current stage of the world, now we might, fight, fight, we might uh, face uh, huge political and technical difficulties rebalancing, i.e. for OECD countries reducing our deficits, for OECD countries reducing our deficits, 
fiscal and balance of, the, the balance of payment deficits. And at the same time, emerging countries may face huge difficulties reducing their surpluses. And there's no other way uh, you can go. Uh, surpluses are the other face of deficits, and they are surpluses because they are deficits, and they are deficits because they are surpluses. So the two of them go together, and it's because what, and it's why we are experiencing a real global crisis in which emerging countries, and it may be a difference, uh, we'll see uh, with Martin and that, it may be that uh, emerging countries will not remain uh, out of this economic crisis, their growth may reduce as well, and they can reduce their uh, economic performance while at the same time keeping their global surpluses and, and, and we can still, all of, of, uh, all of us can go down the slope without reducing our fiscal and financial deficits. And the reason uh, for which it's going, it may be very difficult to do that is that we have never seen uh, in uh, economic history countries uh, driven by export-led growth being able to change very quickly their economy towards domestic growth, uh, domestic-led growth. It's the last country that really tried was Japan. That was, and it was in 1985, that was the Plaza Agreements, the world went around Japan, especially the US, and told them, you guys have to re-appreciate the yen, and you have to stop, to stop annoying us with all your huge surpluses. That's exactly the same situation as we, we know now. The big difference is that Japan had lost the Second World War, there were American troops on its soil, and it had no choice. So he did it. And it was the beginning of the end for Japan, and it was the beginning of a long recession process, without real reduction of its uh, uh, main economic uh, fe features. And on the at the same time, we know, as Martin has uh, highlighted it, that if we try to reduce fast our fiscal deficits and balance of payment deficits in OECD countries, then we may, uh, uh, we, we may uh, reduce our economic activities and our growth, economic growth to a level and uh, that will be uh, that will uh, create political instability and unrest. And this is something that should be taken very seriously. For instance, if you read a wonderful book in which you have many lessons for today's, <coughs> uh, the uh, this uh, the, the book that Carl Polanyi wrote in London in 1940 in the 1940s about the uh, evolution of the uh, capitalisms uh, since the 19th century. One of the very important things that he says in The Great Transformation is that the uh, explosion, the, the, uh, the surge of uh, Nazism and uh, fascism in continental Europe was extremely linked with the uh, recession and the incapacity to master markets and the way public opinions turn to uh, political movements that, that they considered will put political power and political strength you know, instead of the strength in, in, at the place of the markets. So we have a lot of political challenges. It may be very well that we hit a wall, a wall there. And there's a very important dimension of this difficulty to adjust which is that in the past decades, every time we have gone into a major macroeconomic difficulty, uh, the price of nature has gone down. We have bought our commodities, uh, commodities uh, cheaper. Uh, we, have, uh, we have had a kind of uh, uh, counter shock, 
uh, on the commodity side that has helped us at each every time has been a stabilizer uh, in, in a very efficient way. Today it's going to be very different. If you look at what we could call the prices of nature, even in, this, in the middle of the crisis, they continue to increase. Uh, oil is at a peak again. But it's not only oil, you know, it's each and every commodity, it's water, it's land, it's uh, 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 raw materials, and there are very deep reasons for that. So we, and I will just highlight also that uh, if uh, the uh, left movements uh, tend to have uh, uh, the right vision about the fact that our fiscal deficits and uh, reducing fiscal deficits fast uh, may uh, create problems. Uh, it's also uh, not true that, for instance, correcting the big inequalities that have been, to some extent, the creation of the last decades will help tremendously because reducing inequalities may have important impacts on the domestic market, but in OECD countries, but in, you know, uh, increasing the strength of the domestic market in our economies will lead, will, uh, lead us to increase deficits and increased adaptation challenges. So, uh, as a, if we, we believe that, that there's something right into this, then we may look at how we could do to reduce those global inequalities and imbalances in a more productive way than we have done so far. And uh, a first uh, way to, uh, to, to do it is uh, turning our vision towards the rest of the world. So far, the way we have tried to address the reduction of imbalances has been by looking at the 1 billion people in the OECD world on one side and the 2.5 to 3 billion people in the big emerging economies on the other hand. Now, this leaves out of the game about 3 billion people uh, who, experience, uh, who are now experiencing varied economic uh, paradigms uh, around the world, but in general, which are, which, have, which are now growing much faster than they did in the previous decade. Let's think at Africa, 5% uh, average growth per annum uh, for the past uh, 15 years now. And, uh, it's, and the, this rest of the world is going to be even more important in the coming decades as those 3 billion people are going to grow up to 6 billion in the uh, coming uh, 3 or 4 uh, decades. And um, uh, uh, if we turn our eyes towards that feature of the world, the first question that comes to uh, mind is can those developing countries play the same role vis-à-vis uh, -vis the uh, emerging economies as those emer the emerging economies have played vis-à-vis -vis the OECD world, i.e., can we see a great move of relocation of work capacities and growth from the emerging economies to the rest of the world, a south-south move? That would have major rebalancing impacts because it would lead, on the one hand, to uh, uh, deficits uh, that those emerging economies would run vis-à-vis uh, -vis this rest of the world, but this growing rest of the world would also entertain deficits vis-à-vis uh, -vis our OECD countries. And this would turn the difficulty, uh, this would remain, for instance, the global imbalance between OECD countries and uh, emerging economies as is. And after all, we have lived for decades with major imbalances in some parts of the world. What is very important is that the global equation uh, match. 
Now, this is, also, this is something that uh, leads us back to uh, the, uh, for instance, to the uh, 70s uh, and the first oil shock when not only the economic literature but the policy fervor were very much about how we can recycle the uh, petrodollars. So now it will be the, uh, uh, the uh, sino-dollars uh, or whatever uh, currency. The second policy challenge that we could try to imagine is whether we can uh, uh, design or no, countries maybe in the rest of the world can design a strong domestic-led growth. A strong domestic-led growth in, uh, a, in, you know, within three and then six billion people in this planet would change a lot of things. Now, what is interesting is that uh, domestic-led uh, growth has been seen in the past four decades as a loose policy. Uh, and uh, uh, this, you know, the experiences of uh, self-centered development in Latin America, in socialist economies in the uh, 50s, in the 60s, have been globally failure. And countries that have gone uh, into this way, in most cases, have succeeded in reaching, you know, four, five percent growth rates in best cases, but they have never been able to generate the eight percent plus. Uh, that uh, market-led economies have been, export-led economies have been uh, able to, uh, to, to reach. And there are, at the same time, practical and theoretical reasons for that. Now, it's, it's logical, let's say. Now, if uh, the rest of the world starts export, an export-led strategy, the type of difficulties that we're exper experiencing now worldwide will seem uh, as uh, very easy challenges compared to the type of imbalances and major uh, uh, shocks that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll experience. So on the other hand, so tr trying to reach a higher growth in this rest of the world and identifying new models that could rely more on domestic markets is probably, some, is probably the major economic challenge of, the, of development economics in this decade. The interesting thing is that you see nearly nobody speaking about it nobody really writing about it, nobody trying to experience it. Uh, and uh, it's especially the case in the international institutions where the Asian model remains the only model that is sold to the uh, developing countries and this prospective power of our institutions remains locked uh, into old models that in no way can either bring solutions to the world uh, and in, uh, in a reasonably, we can, you can even reasonably think that bring more and more problems. Second uh, uh, way we can try to, uh, second direction we can uh, try to look into is this history, this thing uh, about the um, relative rarities. One extraordinary thing that is happening to our world, and Martin touched on it uh, several times, is that the relative weight of uh, man and nature have uh, tremendously changed. This may seem as a very philosophical uh, uh, speech now, uh, so it's poetry according to Martin, uh, but uh, if you look at our history as a species, for hundreds of thousands of years, we have been a rare animal in a world of abundant nature, okay? What has happened to us in the past decades, so in a very short time, is that this has reversed, okay? Frankly speaking, does one billion people less in this earth matter in whatever extent to the future of our species? 
No. We could be 1 billion less. Frankly, wouldn't change anything. Now, 1 billion hectares of forests less in this world matter for our sustainability and for the future of our species. And this is a completely shocking, uh, unprecedented, of course, experience that, that we're in with a lot of consequences. The first consequences is that everything that we have said about the convergence of economies and the fact that uh, uh, global imbalances would be just a minor adjustment and transition period uh, after which everybody would converge cannot be true because every decade is bringing in the scene of the world one billion additional people that uh, move ahead and away of us the capacity of unskilled labor to, uh, uh, to, uh, to diminish and uh, you know, strengthens the competition between unskilled uh, uh, people around the world. It's uh, a revolution also for us because this relative rarities uh, syndrome uh, increases the price of all nature goods, as I've as already said, to an extent that it's eating us. It's eating each and every margin of maneuver that we may have in our macroeconomic management. So we cannot be satisfied with the state of things. And one of the major policy challenges that we can see for the coming three or four decades is how can we change that? How can we come back to a world where you know, man is more rare and where, where nature is more abundant? And if you turn to uh, what matters behind that and what, what is the type of, you know, and if you think as an economist, what type, what is the major uh, uh, shift that can happen, happen there? No, it's the relative price of man and nature. We live in a world where nature is undertaxed. It's, in general terms, it's highly subsidized in its consumption. And we live in a world where man is highly taxed and through more labor, the, the, the taxes that uh, in each and every country in different ways are uh, weighing uh, on, 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 on labor. And if you're able, for instance, to make a huge fiscal revolution that obviously would take some time to, uh, to, to, to implement, then you could really change those relative, relative prices, tax heavy nature, untax uh, man, and this would have very important uh, uh, economic consequences that would lead our world towards rebalancing. Rebalancing why? Because on the other hand, this would, on one hand, it would, for instance, make uh, <coughs> OECD countries more competitive on their labor side, and it would, uh, to a certain extent, realign the state of their unskilled uh, eco you know, workforce uh, to its uh, real price. On the other hand, it would change the nature of the growth in developing countries. One figure about that, you may know what is the uh, approximative, approximative uh, cost of, the, uh, sub of, of energy subsidies in developing countries now. It's more than uh, $600 billion a year. It's a, it's a, it's a huge unnecessary uh, fiscal weight on those economies. So can, how can we uh, move into these directions and uh, master again also, as a consequence, our demographic growth? In, uh, let's remember, for instance, and I will just stop on what is a very hot issue there, that in the uh, 70s and the 60s, one of the most important topics in development economics was demographics. 
uh, how to control population, how to uh, reduce growth uh, speed and in population. Obviously, we have completely uh, uh, given up uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, keep control on our population, and uh, this uh, and and this. Uh, 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 has had huge consequences on uh, how we uh, and on, on the price that we pay now. I will just end on that note. Just imagine that uh, China would have failed on its uh, one-child policy, and let's imagine what would have been the state of the world with about uh, two billion Chinese or 1.6 billion Chinese uh, right uh, right now. Finally, uh, let me uh, end by word on the social challenge. Uh, we are going to live in a world of enormous poverty. Uh, even if we believe, which will never take place, that uh, the growth numbers that we had uh, been used to think about uh, only a couple of years ago, i.e. a world that's going to grow about 4%, emerging countries that are going to grow 6%, they will not grow 6%, they will grow much uh, slower. And OECD countries that uh, are going to go 2%. So let's imagine that those numbers are correct. If we were to live in that world, in about 40 years ahead, in about 40 years ahead of us, we would live in a world which would have uh, achieved tremendous progress in fighting against poverty in relative terms, but in which you would have, because of our demographic growth, about 2 billion people living with less than $2 a day. So we will live in a world which would be hugely poor. There will be more poor after 40 years of fast growth in the developing world, there will be more poor, I repeat, in, in after 40 years of fast economic growth than we have now. So this is once more the result and the magics of the demographic growth. Uh, and then we have to deal with those huge numbers in a very different way. So far, the challenges of poverty alleviation were massively ethical, moral. Can we afford to live in a world with so much poverty? And the answer of so many was, of course, not. We have to fight poverty, and we have to fight it just because poverty is not acceptable anymore. Now, at those levels, poverty is not anymore only a moral issue. It's an economic issue. It's a, it's a political sustainability issue. It's, it's a pragmatic issue. It's a pragmatic challenge that all policymakers and all populations around the world will have to, to face. And the type of question then we have to, uh, the, the way we can address this issue is saying how we can shift this, the way of looking at poverty. How can shift poverty seen as a burden because it's an issue, it's a, it's a challenge for, for instance, redistribution, as an opportunity, two billion people in massive poverty, it's also a wide opportunity for additional growth and for uh, inclusion. And as such, uh, the uh, social economics of redistribution and uh, of, of growth are going to change in the coming years. If we are able also to find new and um, deep sources for growth in uh, not only the developing world but also in the poverty within our countries, then we would be able to, uh, uh, to change the course uh, of our economies over the coming couple of decades. And uh, this leads us to see global policies not only as ways to address technical challenges, technical common challenges, such as climate uh, 
security, etc., but also op opportunities to uh, promote growth. If, for instance, it's all the challenge around the discussions that are going to uh, take place in uh, Rio Plus 20, in the Rio Plus 20 summit, now in a few months ahead, a few months' time uh, in, uh, in, in Brazil. So, um, and if we believe in that, then thinking at issues that seem to be unthinkable a decade ago as uh, global safety nets, global social security, uh, global redistribution, and so forth, begin to have uh, to take a very different, uh, very different face. So it's time to shake the tree uh, and to look at uh, global issues, international issues, in a very different way. Moral, ethics, uh, uh, compassion, charity are now part of the mainstream economics because they are part also of our recovery uh, uh, opportunities. And rebalancing, uh, fighting against our uh, deficits is also has its source and its, uh, and its opportunities outside of no borders in the way we reshape the world. The G20 has started to address this issue. If you look at uh, the uh, uh, Seoul and then the Cannes agenda, you can see signs that this type of approach is percolating. It's, just, it's not only theory. A big chunk of the uh, Cannes agenda now is around uh, rebalancing and using development as, as a, a net goal for opportunity for everybody. But obviously, we are very far away from what would be a real global policy addressing this side of the uh, uh, restructuring of our economies. And uh, well, it's, it's an opportunity for economic professors and for academic research, as well as for policymakers. And I hope that all of you will be able to contribute. Thank you very much. Well, before we open it up for discussion to all of you, I, I would like to ask uh, Martin briefly to reflect on what he's just heard. I mean, you provided a, a fairly sober, if not chilling, diagnosis of where we are. So how does that help you to think about the kind of, not blue skies thinking, but serious options that Jean-Michel has put on the table? I have two questions, really. You know, how far do you accept these as desirable options to the future? And secondly, do you see, do you see the political capacity existing to shift us, as it were, the world economy and its structural rules and policies now from where we are to somewhere fundamentally different in five years, ten years, fifteen years? Okay, I actually think that. Um, I mean, there was, there's a lot of profound poetry or possibly philosophy, I don't know, in this. Um, and it was the sort of contribution I expected, perhaps because I'd seen it, but also because I predict this with the author. I think there are um, a number of very different and deep questions, and I'm not sure how far I can uh, answer them. Let's think about this... Let's just make two points. I don't know what's going on with these the strange that something is interacting with something. I don't know what probably it is. mine, maybe it will cut mine. This is off. While you talk. Cut mine. Okay. Um, sorry about this. Um, over the next uh, five to ten years, we are um, not going to change the world. Um, 
we, will, we can talk about it, and it may possibly influence some of what will happen. Um, but we're going to be struggling with the relationships, I think with the relationships I described. And I agree with Jean-Michel, it could be, it unfortunately could be far worse for two reasons. First, we really don't have any um, solutions yet to the state of the developed world. Uh, at the best, it's going to be a long process. And at worst, there are some structural problems which he alluded to in terms of um, underlying demand, wages and so forth, which are not going to be changed. And secondly, the emerging world and developing world has lots of vulnerabilities, which I couldn't discuss. So this is going to be a very difficult uh, process. But essentially, in the context of what he raised, it's a short-term process, and I'm, I'm using short-term in the, in, in the I mean, sort of slightly, I'm talking something like 10 years or so, five to 10 years process. And we'll either get through this in one piece or we won't, and at the moment it's not clear just not clear. By getting through it in one piece, I mean getting through it without actually having depression and repeating some of the really disastrous mistakes of the past. Then I think, and it is possible, there is a connection then. Then there is a really deep question, which, like most economists, I try not to think about it because it's so hard, which is, um, which is obviously worth raising, and many people sort of have it in the back of their minds, which is what sort of world economy, world political and social system, would actually work in terms of the convergence process broadly defined, given demography, given the in incredible inequalities that still exist on the world over the next 40 or 50 years. And I do actually agree with him. In fact, it's something I've been thinking about a lot for a for a book that I'm planning, but I'm not starting yet because I've got another one to do first about the shift and the shock, which is uh, it's really very difficult to imagine us simply replicating what we've done. Uh, namely, the developed world continues to grow at a couple of percent a year, gets richer and richer. The emerging world catches up on the developed world. The developing world then catches up on the emerging world. And then at some time, 50, 60 or 80 years ago, everybody lives as not like us now, but even richer. And, the, and if you work through, and you've got 9 or 10 billion people living like this, it's very hard to believe that that's going to be workable. Now, uh, um, uh, Matt Ridley will, if he, would immediately start trying to kill me, because, of course, there are lots of people, in, particularly in Anglo-Saxon countries, I think England and America, who deny this absolutely. Now, if you accept that proposition, then you have to ask yourself what finally will have to change and how does that work back to what we're going to do now? And the answer is, I don't know. I think there are fascinating questions about that, but I don't know. The, the, we can discuss it, if you like. Some of it's going to happen automatically through uh, Jean-Michel's prices. I mean, we can see it in the commodity markets. Commodity prices are really, really interesting. We are in the middle of this huge, we've had this huge recession. The developed world has been in recession for years, and commodity prices are fantastically high before the real recovery. That, but there are other things we can't really price. We can't cli price climate, and there are lots of other things. So all I would say is, and this is a cop-out, of course, I think Jean-Michel has raised some very, very profound questions. Um, uh, which I, to which I don't have the answers, and um, and this being so, like many economists, I'd rather not think about them.
<laughs> so let me just ask Jean-Michel. I think the options you set out are theoretically very attractive. Um, uh, but where do you see the political capacity, or to put it bluntly, the political leadership emerging to steer these imbalances in a different direction, to change the rules of the game in certain fundamental ways, to cost environmental damage into economic pricing and so on and so forth. That requires a kind of global economic governance that we just don't seem to have, nor do we seem to have the political will to begin to create that architecture. If anything, we see now a growing a multi emergence of multipolarity, a weakening of the post-war consensus, a splitting up of the multilateral order, and so on, the opposite of the building of that kind of steering <laughs> capacity. So I just wonder, I mean, these are the kind of questions people put to me when I'm giving parallel uh, talks to yours. But I just wonder where you see some change of directions or rulemaking coming from. What kinds of authorities could change the rules in small yet incremental ways to change the pricing structure in such a way that costs in climate and so on? Okay. Um, obviously, there's not going to be uh, one single moment and one single place where suddenly things will be solved. Uh, this will never happen. But you know, several uh, things will take place progressively and should take place at different levels. And let me highlight three of them. One which I will not comment is the uh, global governance, uh, if only because you are a specialist of that, David. Because, but obviously, if you see, if you look at what is the uh, G20 uh, by itself, the way it moves ahead and its real agenda, things are taking place there that we would not have imagined uh, five or ten years uh, before. So there are changes will take place and governments are pushed into finding solutions, but obviously they are slow uh, to emerge, slow to implement, uh, and they cover only part of the agenda. At the other extreme, on the ground, many things take place. Uh, we are living in a world where so many stakeholders have part of responsibility in the global game that if not only some but many of them move into the same type of direction with the same type of understanding of where the challenges then important things may change. It happens that in my uh, new life not only I'm a private investor but I'm also sitting on the board of uh, a couple of uh, very large corporations, multinational corporations, uh, as you call them. Uh, what is very impressive, for instance, is the way those corporations take stock of what the world is about and the way they see, for instance, the challenges of uh, poverty and development as very much part of their global strategy and of the challenge. This move towards the bottom of the pyramid that we heard a lot about uh, five years ago, and that seemed to be, you know, something extremely new, extremely revolutionary, etc. It's something now that is being done by many, and which has huge impacts on the ground. So, one more, we should also trust that a good and shared understanding may need stakeholders to move in two shared directions. And also, third, uh, things will take place also at the regional level. Uh, and I will not comment at this stage the euro thing, though I would uh, really uh, uh, die for additional discussions on the euro and the relationship between France and Germany, for instance, uh, within the euro. But I will take about the talk about the Mediterranean. For France, 
uh, Spain, Italy, and so forth. The, what, happens in the, what has been happening in the Mediterranean for the past 20 or 30 years is of huge importance. All the uh, <coughs> demographic and economic shocks we've been talking about in the real daily life of our societies come very much from our relationship with the uh, South Bank of the Mediterranean. Now, uh, it's uh, what uh, w a very, very concrete, precise question is whether the uh, South and North banks of the Mediterranean are able to generate a new economic paradigm for this region. If, for instance, uh, all uh, the South Bank of uh, uh, the Mediterranean finds that the only solution to uh, cope with their labor uh, uh, and their population uh, challenge is to either send their population to uh, Europe or to uh, move into the export-led growth that, for instance, Tunisia has been very good at the slow level at uh, generating, then we are dead. Either we'll go for a major political shock or in conflictuality, or the failure of that strategy will lead the South Bank uh, of, of, of the sea uh, to, uh, uh, to collapse uh, politically. Now, so the major challenge now for this uh, part of the world is whether uh, it is able to build on its domestic market, grow on its own strength, and also build uh, long uh, distance trade uh, uh, relations with China and the rest of the emerging world. And how Europe can do in order to have that happening in the coming 10 years. So, f and there are solutions for that. You can, you can design and imagine things, but you're not going to solve the global economy, but you will really uh, uh, uplift a big load uh, for, the, uh, for, the, for, for part of the Eurozone if this problem is fixed. Thank you. Um. Over to you all. I mean, let's take several questions at a time since we are pushed uh, for time. I'll take uh, five questions to begin with. Um, let's see, there's someone with a hand up right at the top. If you could keep your questions now very short. Just say who you are, short question, and we'll gather as many as possible. My name's Sarah. I work for a think tank. Um, it sounded like listening to you both speak that you might disagree over the seriousness of governments running deficits or at least the speed at which they need to sort that out. Um, could you expand on that, please? Thank you. Yes. My name is Severin. I'm a student here at LSE. I was just wondering if you could comment on the future of the global savings glut, uh, specifically given the current economic landscape. My name is Gianluca. I'm, I would like to ask you if you have like a kind of forecast about the future in terms of exchange rate of euro against the other currency. <laughs> mm. um, we would be rich if we could. Huh? I'm not allowed to speculate. Mm. 
Hi, my name is Peter. I'd like to know to what extent you think a government's potential decision to operate Keynesian economic policy would have a negative impact on its credit rating in the bond market. And uh, this is the last one for now. Someone just got a finger up there. As uh, this seems to be sort of a balance of uh, trade problem, where you have very competitive countries and uh, okay, and very sort of uncompetitive countries. And uh, the uncompetitive countries are, uh, at the same time, uh, have not sort of the same routine to pay taxes. So when you have uh, sort of the south of um, the south of Europe, for instance, uh, they basically, where the people are pretty rich and the countries are pretty poor, or, uh, and then in the north, where the countries are rich and where the people are sort of half poor. So how do you actually sort of get that together and, and actually can solve sort of the problem when it actually are, are working against it? Should we try and uh, be as disciplined in your responses as the questions were? Um, Martin, go for it. Okay. Um, there are, I think, uh, two questions which are really about fiscal deficits, um, Keynesian policy and government deficits. I think there's a difficulty in defining what a Keynesian policy is, and I'm, we don't have the time. Uh, um, <laughs> I think what's happened is that as a result of changes elsewhere in the economy, um, essentially the collapse of the, um, of the credit boom, um, extraordinarily large fiscal deficits emerged almost entirely automatically. There's been very little discretionary fiscal expansion. It's often been exaggerated. But the extent to which it's, it's blown up deficits has been profoundly affected by the economic structure of the country. So particularly countries where the financial sector was important and housing was important um, uh, and taxes in particular were generated off those sectors. Uh, it had very dramatic effects on the fiscal position and countries where the main impact of the crisis was on exports from which rather little taxes are generated had rather little fiscal consequences. So what I think we've done is accommodate the change. In the 30s, they wouldn't have accommodated the change. They would have tried to cut the deficits. And so the policies being pursued in Spain, Italy, um, now Greece, are essentially the policies that were pursued in the 30s, which weren't a great success, and they're not a great success in these countries. And that then gets to the, the, the question of what fiscal policy makes sense. Um, and I think my answer to that, and I don't have more time to discuss it, is it depends on whether you can borrow easily or not. And if you can't, you can't, you can't pursue this sort of policy, you're forced to tighten. Um, or no government, if no government will lend to you and the private markets won't lend to you. And if you can borrow, you shouldn't um, tighten very rapidly because um, the private sector is wanting to lend. And if everybody tries to stop borrowing um, in that situation, you're going to have a depression. So that's basically where we are. Unfortunately, some Eurozone countries are being forced into a depression. Um, and that then links to the balance of trade question. A balance of trade question, this is really, really important, and it follows from this. In a straightforward 
economics. It's a macro demand and supply question, and, it, and it's a competitiveness question. It is never only a competitiveness question, uh, something that unfortunately very few people in the Eurozone seem to fully to get. Uh, uh, and the problem, therefore, is adjusting both the competitiveness and the demand. If you only adjust the competitiveness, this is called beggar-my-neighbor policy, and it won't work. It just won't work, that's all. You'll all just have a big recession. Um, and that leaves us only with the exchange rate of the euro, which I am happy not to forecast, um, uh, because um, nobody has a clue. I can give you models and stories in which it's going to explode upwards. I can give you models and stories in which it will collapse. And of course, I can give you models and stories in which there is no euro at all to have an exchange rate. <laughs> Maybe I will start on that. Uh, if you were a European and if you were in the Eurozone, you would like to see the euro depreciate. Whether it will happen is another story. But even if you wanted it to depreciate, whether it would be a solution is also something that is unknown for a very good reason, which is that uh, about 70% of, uh, uh, of German, uh, German's exports, for instance, are within the Eurozone. And there's most of its external trade for each and every country of the Eurozone is within the Eurozone. So external, competitive, external competitiveness matters less than the relationship and the size and the depth of the domestic euro market. And it's where things, uh, I, I'm sorry to say, I think our German neighbors got it wrong. Uh, they launched a big race for, the, for recession within the euro. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm covered by, by uh, uh, Martin's uh, wisdom because it's something that he regularly writes about. And one of the, uh, and the uh, very difficult choice the Eurozone is uh, faced to right now is that either the Germans uh, accept to a, to a certain extent to reduce their relative competitiveness and to drag the entire Eurozone to them, which they obviously refuse to do, or every, each and every single uh, country is forced into adjusting to a level of competitiveness uh, and demand within the markets that will send the, on, the entire zone uh, down. And so how this will uh, uh, play is uh, something unknown. I will try to, to make a second comment on the uh, trade challenge and the competitiveness. Uh, if I look at my country, for instance, one of the things which I think would be uh, uh, of huge importance and st is starting to be uh, discussed concretely is whether we are able to make a big uh, fiscal revolution that would dramatically change our competitiveness. For the, for, for at this juncture, in France, about, uh, you know, France uh, uh, public spending is about 50% uh, uh, of its GDP. About 25% of its uh, fiscal spending is about, uh, and of taxes, is uh, about uh, social redistribution health, uh, pensions, etc. Et and uh, all this is weighing on labor costs. So if we're able to shift 20%, 25% of our GDP from taxes weighing on laborers, on labor, on income tax, or VAT, this would dramatically change the, this, the, uh, the very nature of our competitiveness. To a certain extent, it's a hidden devaluation 
that, that would take place. And we need that in order to reestablish uh, the relative prices of uh, labor and capital vis-a-vis -vis Germany in our economy. So uh, uh, the taxes, the tax system, uh, the way it's designed, on what it weighs, has and will have a major role to play in the speed at which we are able to, uh, to, uh, to uh, reestablish uh, our growth patterns. And it's beginning to be one of the most important discussions within the, uh, in the debate uh, for the presidential elections uh, in three months' time uh, now in, uh, in, in France, starting from uh, what is a very, very, very tiny and first move uh, into this direction that Nicolas Sarkozy has proposed to, to, to do, and which probably will be uh, partly defeated uh, during the, 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 uh, the discussion. Uh, shouldn't uh, Eurozone countries try and uh, do uh, attract more investments from uh, China and India and other countries or go after the money stashed in Swiss banks and other uh, tax havens to address both the macro demand as well as competitiveness uh, issues that you addressed to? We'll just take a couple more. Top. Hi, my name is Apoor and uh, I'd like to ask Martin, um, what forecast do you expect on Indian, Chinese and uh, other Asia-Pacific economies because of this collapse? Because a major sector of the employment there comes from uh, the Western economies. Yeah, I just have a short question. Uh, do we uh, need to change our view in which we look at inflation in order to get out of the, <laughs> the crisis? Uh, name's Peter Sturdy. Um, just asking on the so poetic side, um, what influence uh, widespread of technology will have on the demographics? And finally, thank you. Hi, my name is Sabrina, and I've just had a question because I've been thinking about this for a while, and I was wondering if is it a recession or is it financial fraud? Is it recession or financial fraud? These are not mutually exclusive. Well, <laughs> 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 so let's, let's have uh, Jean-Michel first. Can we just be very brief, uh, Jean-Michel, just a minute or two, and then Martin will finish us off. One, of course, emerging countries' growth is going to decline. There's no way, uh, I think, emerging economies, export-led emerging economies, it's not all of them, for instance, Brazil is not in this case, uh, there's no way emerging economies can escape a slowdown in their economic growth. And the question, uh, and the question for them is, would be, of course, how fast and far the domestic market can take the place of uh, OECD countries' uh, uh, economic uh, markets uh, through, uh, in the coming years. Uh, and yes, inflation uh, has to be uh, looked with, uh, at with different uh, eyes. Uh, by the way, it's one of the very important differences between the way the adjustment or the uh, financial management of the crisis is led 
uh, in the US, in the UK on one side, in the Eurozone on the other side, where the central bank uh, has a lot of resistance refinancing the uh, sovereign debt because of its, and not only, uh, it's not the only reason for that, but partially because of the uh, fear of uh, in, um, in inflation. And um, as far as the uh, Eurozone is concerned, uh, the, the difficulty of the Eurozone, but I will stop not go further on that, is, you know, is, is that it's, it's experiencing a double crisis. It's, exper it's experiencing a crisis of, it, of the zone by itself vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. It's experiencing a crisis within itself between Germany on the one hand and basically all the rest of the zone on the, on the other hand, maybe with the exception of the Netherlands. Okay, um, I'll try and do... I think the question of whether we end up with inflation um, and whether we should end up with inflation simply as a way of getting rid of an awful lot of debt is fascinating. I, um, my guess is that in the very long run, and we are talking much longer than most people think, uh, the US, UK will end up with significant inflationary bursts at some point to get rid of the debt accumulations they have. I'm not certain of that. You could imagine getting around it without it, but I don't really believe it. Uh, there has to be a, a massive reduction in debt overhangs, which will be both private and public, and it's really hard to do that in a country where you print your own money other than by inflation, and it's really easy to do it that way if you're determined enough. Um, the, uh, where that will end up with the euro zone, I don't know, but if it doesn't work that way, they're simply going to be, let's be very, very clear, it's the safest prediction on earth. They're going to be wave upon wave of default in the euro zone if they don't have inflation. There is just no other way out of it. Uh, the debt dynamics are just horrendous without it. Um, they really are in quite a big mess. The, somebody asked about technology and demographics, and I, I, I wanted John Michel to respond to that. I, I could only think of a facetious comment. I don't want to talk about the, the technology of birth control because that's really rather simple. Um, but I suppose if we give people enough gadgets in the West, they seem to find out lots more fun, amusing things to do than have children. So maybe that will be true. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that will be true for the whole world. Um, uh, the iPod is the alternative. Uh, I am only being semi-facetious. Uh, um, I think there's only there are two other points which recessional fraud we dealt with. Um, yes, uh, the, the, it would be very good if the countries uh, now in difficulty get huge floods of foreign investment. Um, uh, it would also be very good if they could get all their money, the money out that has gone abroad. Uh, unfortunately, there's not much chance of either. Uh, they, the Italians are really going to try on the latter, and they will get money back. And I th think the alternative to inflation in Italy is going to be a great big swinging wealth tax. And I think that's also the way Japan ends up, though there it will be a forced conversion of debt. Um, I can't see Chinese and or Indian investment beginning to be large enough to save them. And finally, uh, this is a very deep question, and Jean-Michel talked about it, so this is the very last point. Um, 
if the, the West slows down significantly this year, and it's not clear that it will, because I think America might do quite well, it just slows down, I think China and India can keep going reasonably well. Uh, India's reasonably balanced too. It doesn't depend enormously on foreign demand. China is more interesting, but I think actually, I can't, don't have the time to go through it, China has quite a few levers it can pull to expand further if it needs, if needs to. If instead of just a slowdown, we have a meltdown, so that you, know, you actually have a situation in the course of this year or early next year that a major government teeters on the brink of default, simply cannot roll over its debt, and nobody helps it, then you're in a, in a completely new scenario. This is a 30s-type scenario, and the consequences of the world become completely unpredictable because it would certainly include a meltdown of the banking system. And I'll just leave it with one simple and very important point. The Eurozone has far and away the biggest banking system in the world. It's much bigger banking system than the US. If it get, and it has basically, put it crudely, no capital in it at all. So if, forget the, forget the risk-weighted capital things, proper leverage is somewhere between 25 and 40 to 1. In that situation, it really doesn't take much to get a meltdown. And we really don't know how we would deal with it, given the fiscal position of the Eurozone today. So a true depression is, alas, possible. I'm not saying it's likely, it's possible. And then, of course, there is nowhere on Earth in the world economy uh, that would not be affected. Jean-Michel, do you want to comment on the forecast, or the, Euro the Eurozone bit of it in particular? Yeah, well, I agree with everything that uh, Martin has uh, said. Uh, now, whether it's a likely scenario or the most likely scenario, it's a possible scenario, whether it's most likely scenario remains to be seen, because since the beginning of this crisis, we have been at the same time unable to, uh, at any time, to really pull uh, out, but at, no, I mean, at each and every moment, the worst has been avoided. And uh, one like, probably more likely scenario is that the Eurozone will just continue muddling through uh, and uh, will, uh, will, will push the, the debt ahead and will find solutions uh, to it. And as Martin pointed it out several times, it will take uh, 10 years uh, or maybe even longer to really come back to uh, higher growth rates which, by the way, may be not essential for part of the Eurozone because if Germany has a de declining demography, for instance, it doesn't need high growth and, 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 and so on. And finally, just, just one word on de demographics. Apart from uh, TV uh, and, and movies, education is probably uh, the best input into uh, uh, birth uh, and, you know, and the demographic transition and, and, and birth rates, rates reduction and especially uh, girls' education. And every, everywhere in the world where it has taken place, it has had a huge impact. So one very important part of this challenge is whether universal education can uh, spread fast enough uh, to have uh, an impact on, uh, on the uh, on demography in the coming uh, two or three decades. Well, the bomb technology, uh, Beckham. So, uh, 